You are listening to the QSR Web Podcast. Hello, everybody, and great to have you back to this week's QSR Web Podcast. I'm QSR Web Editor Shelley Whitehead, and we've got a great show today featuring KFC U.S. President Kevin Hawkman to talk about a chain that each and every day fulfills the fried chicken choices of some 12 million people in the brand's 20,000 stores worldwide. In our interview with Hawkman, we will, of course, focus on the U.S. side of the 89-year-old brand, which is a hugely hot seller in just about every sized American community. And speaking of restaurant sales, that's the focus of our first interview with Sterling Douglas, the CEO of POS Integrator Chowley, who will focus on third-party delivery providers as we move into the food service future. That's next after this brief word. With each delivery service comes another tablet at your host stand. With each tablet comes more orders pouring into your restaurant from DoorDash, Postmates, Uber Eats, and more. While your staff is struggling to enter the orders manually into the point-of-sale system, the customers at home are hungry and the customers in-house are growing impatient. This chaos happens way too often in restaurants. What if there were a solution to improve operations? The solution is Chally. Chally takes orders from third-party marketplaces and integrates them into your POS system so your employees don't have to. Using Chally will improve order accuracy, fulfill orders more quickly, and gain happier customers. It's time to ditch the tablets. Get started by visiting Chowley.com today. That's C-H-O-W-L-Y.com. We are back now with the co-founder and CEO of restaurant tech company, Chowley, Sterling Douglas. And welcome, Sterling, and thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So... Let's just get started. There's a lot of talk these days around the relationship between restaurants and third-party marketplaces. And at Chowley, you work closely with both and have honed in on the key tactics restaurant operators should practice when using third-party delivery services. So just to start here, tell us about that and what Chowley does, as well as some of the company's recent successes. Sure. So quite simply, Chally is a point-of-sale integration company. So we're going to take orders from the different third-party marketplaces. These are companies like Uber Eats, DoorDash, Postmates. There's over a thousand of them live in the U.S. alone. And we're going to integrate them directly into the restaurant's point-of-sale system. So without us, if you're a restaurant, and let's just say you sign up for the big four platforms, you're going to get shipped four different tablets. Now you have a staff member at your restaurant who is watching these four different screens, waiting for orders to come in, and then manually typing them into the point of sale system. Hopefully, they're doing it correctly. And so what we're going to do is automate that whole process. Takes the mistake possibilities right out of the equation, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> it's, uh, and machines typically are a little bit more accurate uh, than humans when it comes to the data entry. Are there really a thousand of these players out there today? Just in the U.S.? Yeah, just in the U.S. So whether they're local, regional marketplaces that may have been started out by a college student and, and they still own the campus, um, or another uh, you know, branded online ordering company or a mobile app company that pops up uh, you know, 
as the technology is getting easier and easier to build, you're seeing a lot of options for restaurants. And likely on the point of sale side, it's, there's a ton there as well. There's over 250 point of sale systems in the U.S. alone. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of options that restaurants have. Yeah, they certainly are. And you can see why um, some of the operators are a little befuddled um, <laughs> uh, with with all those options. Uh, how many POS systems is Chally integrated with? And then how many restaurants use Chally? Sure. So currently we have 24 point of sale integrations live today across over 3,100 locations in the U.S., some in Canada and a couple locations in Mexico. And actually, we recently crossed over a cool milestone. We processed over a million orders a month uh, back in February. Uh, so that we had a million different orders from all the different third parties, point of sale integrations and locations uh, go through our system. That was February. And I guess you're just rolling forward. That's a lot of people's dinners. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a, lot of, a lot of pizzas, a lot of pizzas. <laughs> How can a restaurant operator really um, maximize the benefits of offering their their menu on third-party delivery marketplaces? Yeah, so that's a big question, right? So when we think about third-party marketplaces, there's still a relatively new concept to restaurant operators. Uh, Uber Eats has only been around for three years. Oh, uh, wow. And, and what we found is that they're really haven't been any best practices in the industry for how to actually use the services. Uh, You you hear about a lot of restaurants who are hesitant because there's operational challenges that they present and there's high fees uh, associated with some of the platforms. So at Chally, one of the things that we've found is that there's really not a one-size-fits-all solution. There's not an easy kind of yes, no, should we be on third parties or not? But we have seen a few steps that we recommend every restaurant tour take make sure that they're maximizing the use of the third-party marketplaces. You want to share any one <laughs> or two of those? <laughs> uh, of course. So, yeah, I mean, we have, we have three main, main steps that we think are really valuable to get started. Uh, one is going to be keen on starting out with your operational workflow. Uh, next is going to be something called menu optimization. And then after that, really adding on more platforms. Um, so I'll kind of step into one. And then there's a little extra credit one I'll throw in at the end as well. Uh, but these three main pieces. So the first place to start out is the operational workflow. Uh, so we usually recommend starting out with just one of the marketplaces for this and really thinking about how offering delivery, especially from a third party, is going to affect your operations. So we want to ask questions like, how are the orders being sent to the kitchen? How is the host stand or the expo station being notified? Do you have different packaging? Who's responsible for the handoff to the driver? Where do the drivers wait if they arrive a few minutes early? And how are you handling the accounting piece of this new revenue source? These are really questions that we want to make sure that the staff is involved with and they're equipped to handle the new process. And while obviously point of sale integration uh, helps with some of those issues, um, you really need to work as a team within the restaurant to make sure these questions are answered. That is so vital. I know uh, I listened to a designer at the National Restaurant Association show recently he was saying how they plot out the actual physical space to a lot for the technology and delivery and and ordering pickup and the like um it's just a huge component you have to think through all the steps don't you 
Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of groups um, almost re redesign uh, the modern restaurant, right? I mean, it's, it's funny they, some of these practices, uh, you know, you know, groups who have been doing delivery for a while. You think about groups like Jimmy John's; they've had two cook lines or you know two make lines for for decades, and now you're seeing groups like like Chipotle and other ones where there's this whole renewed focus on off premise. Uh, they're changing up the design of their restaurants, and so now they're having you know two cook lines. Um, for both for off-premise and on on-premise um, food items, so it's uh, it, it's been it's a thing that every restaurant really needs to think about before they're hopping on these third parties. So, outside of operational flow, um, I think there were you mentioned two other components. Do you can you can you give us some information yeah. about that? Yeah, so the second one is around menu optimization. Um, I, once, uh, once the operations are up and running, uh, the next milestone we look for is getting your menu right. Uh, the number one mistake that we really see restaurants make is just sending a bare PDF of their menu to the third party and having that be uploaded. Your menu on the third party marketplaces is not the same menu you offer in store. We have two uh, piece of, of advice that we see uh, that successful delivery restaurants are really using. Uh, one is that they're keeping their low margin and high food cost items off of their third party menu. This is a big help in making sure you're actually profitable when you take into account the commission fees that you're paying the third parties. The classic example um, that we've seen a handful of groups do is you have your traditional bone in wings that you sell. These are typically a much higher food cost than your boneless wings. So we do see groups um, when they have a high food cost item like bone and wings actually not offer that on their third party marketplace menus to help make sure that they're profitable when these orders are coming through. And the second piece of advice that we give around menu optimization is to keep it simple. When the customer is experiencing your menu digitally, you need to keep it simple. Menus can very easily get loud and messy and confusing when they're being consumed on a four-inch iPhone screen. <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's not a, a cashier in front of you where you can ask certain questions. Not, there's not a nice, big, well-organized chalkboard. It's a tiny little digital screen. And so too many options is going to give customers what's called decision paralysis. There's too many choices. And they're actually going to back out of that item or your restaurant altogether, um, and they're going to order from somewhere else. So we wanna make sure that your menu consists of items that have high margins and simple menus so that you're gonna create more orders. Now, one of the things that Chowley has supported since day one is this idea of menu parity. So your menu on your third party might not match exactly what's in your point of sale menu, and that's okay. Our menu mapping process actually allows to make sure that your maximizing the value of your menu on your third-party marketplaces, but still ensuring that it shows up on your kitchen display system, your kitchen chips, and your accounting to fit your normal operation. Okay, number three. <laughs> <laughs> so number I'm, just, three. I'm keeping you on course here. <laughs> I appreciate that. There's a lot of interesting stuff, so sometimes I can go on tangents. Load up on platforms. Your operations are ready, your menu's optimized, and you're actually making money on this. So now it's time to load up. As long as it's integrated and you're avoiding tablet hell, every new platform you add on is going to bring incremental sales to your business. And with a menu that works, more profit to your bottom line, and not just your top line. Every market has a different leader. 
Sometimes DoorDash is going to drive the most volume in a particular market. Other times that might be Postmates. So by being on all the platforms that are in your area, you're ensuring that you're getting all the potential incremental sales uh, that you can get. That's interesting that there are different platforms that kind of distinguish themselves in different markets. And I, you know, I personally have a lot of different third party uh, apps on my phone. So it's kind of like, who's going to win the lottery tonight for Shelly's business? Um, (laughs) And, you know, a lot of it depends on just it's just a it's it's a cumulative experience that you kind of get through each app. So it's interesting that it, it they distinguish themselves in each market. That's just great advice. I I wonder if to wrap up here, can you share what restaurant trends you all are looking at and what you're looking forward to or are really excited to see kind of gain traction this summer? Yeah, I, I think that the, the number one uh, most exciting piece or trend that we're seeing in, in this group is around virtual kitchen, virtual concept. And that's actually the extra credit piece. So if you've added on the platforms, your operations and your menus are all set, the restaurant groups that we're seeing really master delivery are leveraging these virtual pop-ups, dark kitchens. This allows them to get an extra little 3 5% boost um, in their sales when they can really work that into the strategy and execute on it. And the marketplaces, you know, the Ubers and, and Grubhubs of the world, they're going all in on this too. I mean, we just saw a mass email come out from Grubhub to tons of their restaurants, uh, letting them know that, hey, we want to help you do some pop-ups. We found that in your area, uh, there's a, a, a large demand generation for grilled cheese sandwiches or for pokey. We see that's on your menu, but we want to do a virtual par. Uh, pop-up that targets this kind of gap in the specific market. And this is a really great way that restaurants can increase the sales. It's an awesome opportunity uh, for them to take even further advantage um, of the market. And in all honesty, is the most recent boom that we've seen in the delivery game. You also have the commissary-like groups like Kitchen United and Cloud Kitchens that continue to grow. Uh, The pop-ups are coming fast. The one that interests me the most, though, are the pods. Uh, The the idea is that you have a shipping container uh, that is a fully functional kitchen and can be really micro-targeted at residential areas or dropped right outside of a really high-volume restaurant that needs additional kitchen capacity. And so you have groups like Kitchen Podular out of Las Vegas that are really leading right now. It's still super early in that market, but that one I'm really excited to see kind of where it goes. That's fascinating. So, so Las Vegas is kind of the hot point for that right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say those guys uh, out there are probably, uh, you know, the biggest group that I've seen, you know, really produce, you know, real, real pods and, and have some good use cases for it. I'd love to see that. You know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, uh, the first thing you mentioned regarding Grubhub's mass mass uh, emailing yeah. we had a brand on a, a couple of weeks back uh sugar wing which is a sub brand virtual kitchen of mighty quinn's and that was kind of the story there that i think they worked with uber eats um i hope i i'm remembering that correctly <laughs> but no, i think that we've seen all of the third-party marketplaces uh really buy in and test out this idea uh, I, I don't really think it's much of a secret anymore. 
Uh, I think it's just a matter of how quickly is it going to spread and, and if uh, the industry is going to be able to execute on it. It's fun to watch. Just so much going on. I want to thank you. This was such great information. Uh, I think you've really helped our listeners understand this very busy, always changing world of restaurant ordering, delivery, and payment. And that's invaluable. Thank you so much. And Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And our listeners, I, I want to ask you to please just stick around because after this brief message, we're going to sit down with KFC CEO Kevin Hawkman to talk about the ultimate game of chicken, quick service fried chicken, Colonel Sanders style. Is your staff struggling to keep up with third-party delivery orders? Is your host stand overrun with tablets and printers that don't even send orders back to the kitchen? If you're ready to maximize the revenue potential of third-party marketplaces while minimizing operational headaches, it's time to ditch the tablets and integrate with Chally. Chally automatically enters orders from third-party delivery marketplaces directly into your point-of-sale system, eliminating the hassle of manual order entry. Simplify your technology setup, reduce labor costs, and increase order accuracy with Chally. Learn more about how it all comes together with Chowley by visiting Chowley.com today. That's C-H-O-W-L-Y dot com. Okay, now we're back and this time with a focus on a QSR chicken brand that is today the second largest restaurant chain in the world by sales, KFC. And frankly, this brand is having a really good year, too. So with us now to talk more about how KFC's uptick in performance actually happened over the last five years, particularly, is KFC U.S. President Kevin Hawkman. Welcome, Kevin. So great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me uh, on your uh, podcast, Shelley. Uh, listen to it often, and I really appreciate you having us on. Oh, well, thank you for that. I'm glad you do listen to it. We have a lot of fun. We learn a lot, too. Now, my understanding is that the value-based approach this brand started focusing on, I believe, back five years ago, uh, is really paying off these days. Can you tell us more about why the brand originally took that approach and how you're now seeing it produce benefits? Yeah, so we, you know, last uh, December, we completed our fifth consecutive year of same-store sales growth. A big driver of that growth, there's been many things, but one of the big biggest drivers has been our recommitment to everyday great value. You know, everyone knows the customer loves value, and when we talk about value, we don't mean just a great price, um, but we mean uh, great quality at a great price, and anyone can lower the price to create value. The challenge for us is in a world where our customers need more value, you know, more than ever, um, how do we do that? Uh, how do we blow away their expectations but still protect our franchisees' P&L given all the cost pressures they have, right? So essentially the challenge for our team is, you know, it's not just about lowering the price. Anybody can do that. It's how do we do that within the confines of four-wall uh, brand economics? You know, our marketing and food teams are consumed with this challenge. You know, how do we delight the value-conscious customer? How do we do it in a way where our franchisees grow profitably you know, one of the big advantages that KFC has versus, you know, some of the competitors that, you know, have been on your show 
is that we make things the hard way. And the, the kernel coined that term the hard way, which is all about making things from scratch, you know, without shortcuts. And, uh, you know, example of that would be, you know, we do, we make our Kentucky Fried Chicken. A lot of people don't know it takes us 25 minutes to do that because we're starting from chickens from scratch, uh, you know, from farms, uh, from states like Arkansas and Georgia. They're antibiotic-free, high-quality USDA chickens, you know, inspected chickens, and it takes them 25 minutes for our trained cooks to bread and fry chickens. Now, why is that important, right? It's important for two reasons. One, we think uh, handmade chicken is going to be crispier, flavorful, and more juicy than one that is, you know, made in a factory and frozen and then refried. But more importantly, to answer your value question, um, it's even more important because when you do things the hard way, your food costs are lower, right? So we're not paying for a lot of that extra processing that happens at plants. And so we tend to have some of the lowest food costs in the industry, which allows us to provide this amazing value while protecting franchisee margins. So for example, you know, one of the things that I think the customers know us for now is our $5 box, which is absolutely unbeatable value in the marketplace. But the average food cost is about essentially the rest of our line's food costs. You know, sure, there are franchisees in high-cost markets who don't love price-pointed value, and that's why we don't run that offer all the time on TV. But doing things the hard way means lower food costs, superior food, and it allows us to stay on great value longer than our competition. And it's one of the reasons I would you know, tell people that listen to your podcast, it's such a great time to own a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. <laughs> got to get that in there, right? <laughs> you you got it, Shelly. Like- so to pick up on that a little bit, you had said you were mentioning doing things the hard way and that 25 minute process of making the chicken. I'm just wondering whether that makes the job a little bit more interesting for folks who work at KFC. Well, you know, that's a great question, Shelley. You know, a lot of folks, um, some people would say, well, man, we should never talk about the hard way because, you know, who wants to do a job that's hard to do? The reality is, in this day and age, the idea of doing you know one thing and doing it really, really well and learning how to do it the right way is very appealing to um, to you know people of all ages. It used to be kind of an older thing, but now young people love this idea of craft, right? And so, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken is, does a great job of offering entry-level jobs for people that want to get started in the industry. I, you know, I always tell people this is still one of the last bastions where the American dream is totally true. In fact, you know, many of the people that started as hourly team members. Um, end up making it to management. So 70% of the managers that run our Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in the U.S. started as hourly employees. In fact, the last three of my chief operating officers um, were all hourly employees, you know, decades prior um, for KFC or Taco Bell and entered into the industry and then worked their way up to be these, you know, giant executives of a four and a half billion dollar fried chicken business. So um, it is an amazing uh, employment opportunities. And truly, I would say still one of the you know, one of the last real bastions of the American dream where anybody is on equal footing when they come in. And it's really about, you know, hard work and dedication and willing to learn a craft like cooking chicken. Um, you know, you really can can be things that, you know, I think people never could imagine. Well, I never mastered it personally. So <laughs> maybe I need to take some lessons from you all. Um, it, it sounds kind of cool, too, to have folks in the upper echelons of leadership who have really come right up from the lower levels of the chain and know all those jobs. So that speaks well of the organization. Um, I, I have to tell you that the competition, I don't have to tell you, 
you actually know this. The competition is intense in the QSR chicken category. Seems to get more so every day. And there is a lot at stake because Americans absolutely love chicken. So I wonder, how would you describe KFC's, quote, personality here in the U.S.? And how does that brand image position KFC in an increasingly crowded QSR chicken segment? Well, you know, we're so lucky to have this amazing Kentucky Fried Chicken brand uh, that the colonel and our first franchisee, Pete Harmon, started. And this was, I want to say, 1952. Um, competitive concepts would love to have what we have, which is clear, ownable brand elements that nobody can replicate. So those are things like the colonel, his white suit, the bucket, finger-licking good tagline, which is one of the greatest taglines of all time, red and white stripes, a secret recipe. You know, we always joke that uh, there aren't too many global secret recipes in the world. We have one of them you know, in our original recipe, fried chicken. And the list goes on and on of things that are just very unique to Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's literally a marketer's dream. You know, I started as the chief marketing officer here five years ago, and it was like, man, marketers would absolutely just die to have these kind of brand assets. And because we're such a recognizable, we have such recognizable brand elements, and we're now embracing them as a business, we've had a, we have a very high return on our investment on our marketing dollars spent. So, for example, the average QSR that's on TV only has about 40% of customers recognize their ad. In other words, so you know, if I'm franchise X and I show an ad on TV, only 40% of customers actually attribute that ad to brand X, right? Versus on Kentucky Fried Chicken, it's 70%, and it's really changed since we brought back the kernel and really embraced all those things I talked about earlier. And that's going to deliver a much higher return on investment than a brand that gets lost in a sea of uh, crowded, ultra-competitive players you know, to borrow your characterization of the industry. So our franchisees know this, and this is why this is a brand that they feel like they want to invest in, is because we're getting back to our roots. That delivers a higher return on the dollars that they commission to us, right, and therefore delivers a better return on their dollars. So to answer your question more directly on the personality piece, you know, we've embraced literally the personality of Colonel Sanders, you know, which is when he was around, he was literally the greatest fried chicken salesman in the world. So when we were at our best, the colonel was at the center of everything we did. You probably remember this. He was on every bucket. He was on every package. He was in every ad. He was on the front of every storefront, right? And um, and the reason why he did all these things was for the sole purpose of just selling you fried chicken. So, you know, for example, Shelly, take a guess of what is our number one day of the year that we sell the most fried chicken. Oh, this should be obvious, that I guess, and it's n- not to me at this moment, but I was going to say 4th of July. So it's not obvious. That's why I ask it. It's Mother's Day, if you can believe. Can you imagine getting your mom a bucket of, of fried chicken? Right. Yeah. And the, and the reason why that is, is the colonel would literally go on TV or go on the radio and say, let the colonel cook for your mom this Mother's Day, right? And he'd hammer that home. Um, about skip the dishes, skip the fuss get mom, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken for, for dinner. And it worked. You know, my favorite radio ad of all time, when I listened to all the stuff that the colonel did, um, was one that they used to play in November. And he'd say, you know, on election day, whether you're Republican or Democrat, come vote for my Kentucky Fried Chicken and you're guaranteed to win. <laughs> he even used election day to sell his fried chicken, right? And so what's cool, what's so, why, why is that important? Like you asked, you know, what's the personality? What's so cool about this voice is that we brought it back and it makes people laugh just like you just laughed and smile because it's so over the top on selling and people watch it. And because the humor is about crazy selling, we can get all of our selling points in. So typically, 
customers are eschewing advertising because they don't want to be sold to, right? But the whole joke of our campaign is the fact of this over-the-top chicken salesman um, that is selling to you. So not only can we entertain you like I just did, but we actually get our product benefits across in a very finite way. Um, so our personality, I think, is one of the keys to this. why this campaign has done so well is because it doesn't just make people interested in watching the ads, but it actually sells our chicken. You know, we've seen a lot of our competition try to do more reverent ads and try to break through the way we have, uh, but, but they don't have the kernel selling voice. And so while their ads, some of them are arguably very funny, I'm not sure how much, you know, of their food it's selling because they don't have the kernel's voice like we have. It really is. The the marketing of this brand is phenomenal, and I want to get to that. I I do want to ask you about something that's really top of mind at the moment, though. Um, when it comes to all types of meats, um, you've given us a good feel for where the brand is today, but I'm wondering if you can pull the curtain back a bit and let us know where you're headed stateside, at least, and um, beginning perhaps with this non-meat demand for center of the plant options that are not, you know, not chicken, not beef. Uh, what's the brand going to do with that? Or what can you tell us the brand's going to do with that? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, I feel sorry for all of us QSR presidents because the one question that we're guaranteed to get asked in any interview or podcast is, what's going on with alternative proteins? And so here's what I would tell you. Our team is super hungry for innovation ideas that will grow our business. That's one thing I think if you asked our franchisee leadership, especially over the last couple of years about our team, they'd say, boy, these guys are hungry to innovate. And we track all kinds of food trends to see what we can democratize for our core customers in our 4,000 outlets at a price point that is irresistible. So, you know, an example would be, we did that with our natural hot chicken and we did that with chicken and waffles most recently that we launched in Q4 of last year, which we both, we both were found as emerging food trends, but we made them extremely accessible and nationwide at 549, right? So for example, if you wanted to go buy natural hot before, natural, or natural style hot chicken before we launched it, you either had to go to Nashville or you had to pay upwards of 15 bucks in New York City or LA to get a hipster version of Nashville hot style chicken, right? So the, the first point I'd make is our teams are very hungry for innovation. They're looking for the next emerging trend that we think we can put our Kentucky Fried Spin on that can both be accessible nationwide as well as at a very attractive price point that our customers normally wouldn't be able to afford. So let's get back to specifically your alternative protein question. So the alternative protein trend is just another major fruit trend that we're going to look at closely. So we're aware it's a growing industry. We're watching this trend very closely to learn as much as we can, including we're going to be meeting with suppliers to, to them to teach us about, you know, right now alternative beef or alternative meat or you know, alternative cow protein has really been the thing that's been the rage. Alternative chicken is just emerging. So what I tell you to answer your question, we have no specific plans right now to test plant-based meat or meat alternatives, but we'll be watching very closely. In fact, uh, I think if you had, you know, on your newswire, you probably saw, you know, our UK uh, partners or KFC UK is actually literally announced a test today of an alternative chicken that they're going to launch in one of their famous, you know, chicken burgers. So uh, what I tell you to answer, to you know, put a pin in this is our number one focus is always going to be making the world's best fried chicken by hand, but we'll always keep an eye on emerging trends because one, we're hungry for growth, and two, we're in a unique position to be able to 
democratize those trends to a mass market at super attractive prices for our guests. So, and I would put this, you know, alternative protein as one of those things that we could potentially democratize in our restaurants. Uh, you know, related to that, um, I wonder if um, I'm a vegetarian, for instance, um, have it always been. I'm so sorry. Uh, it, it, in fact, I grew up on Kentucky Fried Chicken and I still, I have to confess, have yearnings. Um, but <laughs> um, I'm wondering if if KFC were going to approach that um, alternative protein subject, whether you'd be looking for a chicken replacement or whether you'd be just looking for something that would serve as a really tasty alternative protein. Because speaking as a vegetarian, it doesn't matter to me. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to taste like chicken for me to love it. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, you know, it's it, it, it does. You know, there's two insights um, that have emerged. You probably have heard them in some of your other podcasts with um, with my comp- my competition. You know, one is some folks are looking to get that, that have given up meat and they're looking to get those irresistible tastes that they remember when they were younger and were eating meat, you know, whether it's a Kentucky Fried Chicken or some other brand, right? So that's clearly one big opportunity for QSR. The other one is people that are still meat eaters, right? And they're, you know, we call them flexitarian. They're looking to incorporate more um, plant-based proteins into their diet, but they don't want to abandon meat altogether. And in my mind, I think both of those are very, um, are very, are big opportunities for us. The question is, is how big are they? And are they going to be worth, you know, training the restaurants and bringing in an alternative protein um, into the back of the house uh, where we do things the hard way? So, um, ultimately, it comes down to how the, the two the two types of customers I just talked about. How big are they going to be in chicken? Um, and it and it, if one of them pops, that's how we that's what we would design against, right? So if it's really that person that's looking for Kentucky Fried Chicken again, but they don't eat meat, then obviously we do want to try to make that as close as we could and pick that right supplier that could help us do that. If it's somebody that's just looking to, to work in, you know, more flex options, I, I to your point, it probably doesn't matter as close, you know, how, how close it is to Kentucky Fried Chicken. So, you know, those are things that are all TBD as we learn about the industry, and, um, you know, that's what I'd answer it today. Kind of related to that, I wonder if you could disclose what the top three menu item selections are for KFC in the U.S. right about now. And maybe give us some information on how you use those top three to guide what you do as far as future menu diversification is concerned. Well, you know, I you know I can't answer your question specifically. There's some pretty important competitive stuff there. You know, I'll, I'll tell you the one obvious one that probably everybody knows. Our Kentucky Fried Chicken is obviously our number one seller, so our original recipe. So I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. Um, one of the things I can tell you, though, is one of the huge points of difference of our concept versus other chicken competitors or even the Burger Boys is fried chicken segments, all fried chicken segments right now are growing. And the good news is Kentucky Fried Chicken plays in all segments. And so what I mean by that is we play in chicken on the bone, we play in chicken sandwiches, we have strips, we have nuggets, and we even have wings, right? So we've got it covered all in a way that is executable in the back of our restaurants and profitable for the restaurants, right? So why that is important for us is no matter which of those segments start to accelerate, we've got our bets such that we'll grow along with it, right? So if 
wings, you know, has their heyday, we're going to have wings and we're going to grow with that. If sandwiches start growing again, we're going to be able to grow with that too. So it's one of the reasons why I think our restaurant valuations are continuing to increase is because we're not wed to one segment like just wings or just strips, which would make us vulnerable on two fronts. One, the supply side, right? So, you know, the wing players know wing prices go up. They don't really have anything else to then mix it out. Uh, and then we're also, you know, somewhat um, shielded from differences in customer preferences, right? So if customers gravitate to bone-in or boneless, we have those those segments covered, right? So I like the position that we're in because we're in so many segments and we're able to do it in, a, in an operable back of the house. And so I think no matter where the chicken segments go, and, you know, fried chicken's growing in general, but obviously there'll be um, different eddies that spin off on that. We're, we're prepared to win in those segments. Does that hold true for for side items as well, as far as diversifying them and adding on to them? Well, I think we've got great core sides. You know, they're made the hard way, and um, we know we're still one of the only QSRs that you, when you bring home, you actually unpack out of the packaging and you put in the regular china. And that's why our sides are so important because – as you know, the sides, you know, next to the center of the plate, the sides complete the meal, and it creates real mealness for our customers. So, um, I, you know, I, I could see us innovating on sides in the future, but what I will say right now is they're playing a great role in being that home meal replacement, which the Colonel built the business on. So, you know, whether it's our, you know, world famous mac and cheese or our world famous coleslaw, which, by the way, if my mom was listening, she'd say, "Don't change your coleslaw, Kevin. It's perfect, right?" <laughs> or our, you know, fluffy biscuits that we make in the back of the restaurants, or our number one side, mashed potatoes and gravy, right? Like those sides are what completes the meal, and that's a big part of our differentiator in QSR is because we're viewed as a home meal replacement versus conventional fast food. You know, marketing is such a huge part of this brand's DNA, both with the return to the emphasis on Colonel Sanders and just with that whole element of fun and the goofy branded products like the fried chicken scented tanning oil and fire logs. And I'm just wondering, can you share how this approach is changing? Because it's got to evolve to take the brand into the future. Yeah, so it's interesting. A lot of folks look at all these stunts that we do and they're like, man, how do they think of these things? The reality is if you, you know, you, you, you were telling me before we got on the call together um, how you knew the colonel. Like when the colonel was around, all of this stuff was a part of his world, right? So, you know, a lot of folks don't know in the last 30 years of his life, he was not seen in public without his, you know, I call it superhero suit, his Kentucky Fried Chicken suit on, the white suit and the cane uh, or and his, and his glasses. There was, he had bling before bling was a thing with celebrities, right? So he had... <laughs> A, um, a white limousine that was tricked out to look like his white suit, which is actually one of our franchisees. Uh, Chris Fowler owns that limousine. It still works today. It's amazing. He had a, um, the best thing I would call, I would call it a Super Bowl ring. It was a giant gold ring that was actually fried chicken instead of like, you know, your Super Bowl jewels, um, which was, you know, a form of bling before bling existed, right? And so, and then there was tons of merch, what, what young people would call today merch, right? So there were Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants that you could buy and build like little model kits of restaurants or um, we find, um, you just go on eBay and type KFC or Colonel and all of this merch will come up, um, whether they're watches or ties or all these things that, you know, all these QSR brands are doing today. So 
what we're doing with all these stunts, honestly, is just a reboot of what the colonel used to do and basically invented this idea of a Kentucky Fried Chicken world and that people want to, you know, experience the brand beyond just the food and the restaurants that you that you live in. So to get back to like, so what's our strategy on that, right? It's it's pretty simple. It's we've got some pretty core things that are important to the brands, like the kernel and doing things the hard way and we call pride and fried, so pride in our fried chicken. And the brief that we give to these creative teams is literally how do we break through this, you know, cluttered sea of QSR to get people to understand what our core messages are. And the way to do that is with interesting things. So for example, um, you know, if you're standing outside of a Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, even if you, even if you can't see the Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know you're there because you can smell it, right? The smell of our original recipe is a core brand element that nobody can recreate. And so when you see things like Kentucky Fried Chicken scented candles or Kentucky Fried Chicken scented fire logs, right? Obviously, they're interesting and they travel virally, right? But it hammers home a point of difference that nobody else has, which is we have this unmistakable, delicious aroma of a pressure-fried 11 herbs and spices Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? And if you if you actually look at all of those individual things that we do, they're all rooted in some core strategy of the brand. So like the most recently, you know, you have a lot of questions about, oh my goodness, you guys did this thing with the Chippendales where we branded them the Chickendales <laughs> and we dressed them up as colonels and we um, allowed them to dance for mom and you could send mom, you know, a happy Mother's Day from the Chickendales. And people were like, why would you ever do that? It's because the number one day of the year for Kentucky Fried Chicken is Mother's Day, right? And so how do you break through in a way that's unexpected and interesting, but it's clearly KFC because these guys were dressed as colonels. Uh, so there is a complete method of the madness of these stunts, and it's all about how do we break through pop culture and how do we do it in a way that it's going to drive one of our key messages that make our brand so darn special in the in the universe of QSR. Yeah, you, you, you really had some amazing um, folks kind of set the mold uh, in both the kernel and, you know, as you previously mentioned, that first franchisee, Pete Harmon, who I think isn't he attributed with uh, the finger licking good? Yeah. So it's a very unique brand in that, like, we've kind of co-created the brand together, right? So the Colonel was in charge of the recipes, and he was obviously the face of the brand um, and had this commitment to doing things the right way that he called the hard way. So if he was that for the brand, you know, Pete Harmon, who was our first franchisee, was kind of the business brains of the brand. And he invented the tagline, finger licking good, he invented, he was the first one to ever merchandise fried chicken in a bucket, which is now obviously copied by many of our competitors and supermarkets and lots of other players in the industry. Um, and the Harmons were incredibly important in um, helping us develop our brand. And even to this day, Jim Olson, who was the CEO that took over for uh, Pete, um, is still very active and involved in, 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 in our system as a, as a leader in our franchise system, as well as, you know, Many of us at the corporation would count Jim as mentors of ours, right? He is um, that wise and seen so much in the industry and is so kind with his time. So um, Pete Harmon and the Harmon organization is one of the reasons why our brand, I think, is so special is because it's a true partnership with our franchisees. And I think if you talk to some of our leadership franchisees or even the, you know, the, the system franchisees, and, they, and you ask them, do you think, you know, this is a brand that really listens to us and partners with us to do things that are really special? I think the answer is going to be yes for, for most of them, so, which is something I really pride myself on 
and makes me so excited to be a part of this concept versus some other concept. So, so really, the franchisees continue. It sounds like to really feed the brand with great ideas, kind of like Pete Harmon did with that finger licking, finger licking good and the bucket of chicken. Wow, what incredibly valuable ideas both of those were. Yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. A great example of that is the five dollar Philip. I'd love to tell your audience that I alone invented the five dollar Philip. The reality is it came from franchisees Tim and Dick West in the Southeast who invented this idea of a $5 fill-up. And the story, it's so funny, I think Dick would tell you it, is he'll say, you know, he was filling up his gas tank thinking about what some great value idea that he could do in a local, do in local marketing. And he remembered there was a time that it used to only cost $5 to fill up your tank, and that's where he came up with the idea of $5 fill-up. And then obviously we put an abundant amount of food in that to create the, to deliver on the fill-up name, right? And that... That idea was serviced to us by Dick West and Tim West. We went and tested it in a couple markets, and then the rest was history. Five years later, it's a very big part of our business and uh, very profitable for the franchisees and obviously a big driver of why core customers come back to us. So um, there is a history of the franchisees on this brand creating ideas, and um, one of the things I think we've been able to do in the last five years is really be much better listeners to those ideas and much better collaborators with the franchisees on creating things that are that are truly great for the brand. I have so enjoyed talking to you. I cannot let you go without asking you what your absolute favorite KFC meal is. Well, Shelly, I think you could probably guess I'm not a vegetarian. I'm a <laughs> proud card-carrying fried chicken eater, Kentucky fried chicken eater, and so obviously my favorite would be Original recipe, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I prefer the wings for the same reason why the colonel preferred them is because it takes a lot of bites to finish a wing because of the bones are in there. And so I can eat many wings without feeling you know, overly full. And then my favorite side is our coleslaw. It's unbeatable in the marketplace, and uh, we still make it the hard way. So you give me you know, three Kentucky Fried Chicken wings and, uh, and our coleslaw, I'm going to be a happy man. Just three? Ah, Okay. Well, they're um, whole wings. These aren't these aren't wingettes. These are whole oh, wings. That, that, okay, that's true. That's true. I'll give you that. Um, and the coleslaw is good, but I'm a mashed potatoes and great and uh, green beans girl. So um, and I can still do that. So so there. <laughs> you no, know, Shelly, you just you just gave me a great idea for a all sides five dollar fill-up for for folks like you that are vegetarian. I, honestly. I would love that. I would just love that because I because I do when I go when my family, you know, pick up a bucket of chicken because this is a whitehead family tradition to pick up the bucket of chicken for years and years. We've been doing that. You know, I tell them I'm fine. I love the sides. So, um, well, I'll just wait and see. <laughs> Kevin, it well, has if been we, so if delightful. We- Sorry? Hey, thank you for the time. I, pre- I was going to say, if we end up doing that, I'll make sure we send you a $5 gift card to try it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Shelly. Have a great day. I appreciate you having me on your podcast. Kevin, it's been delightful and very educational to hear what this seemingly infinitely evolving brand is doing at the moment. Thank you for being here and just sharing some of your world. And to our audience, thank you for being there and listening. And tell your friends and neighbors to join us, too. The more the merrier, which sounds like our cue to start the weekend. Have a great one, everybody, and even better business in the week ahead. Bye, y'all.